been a joy to watch our kids grow in many different ways. There's just some stages in life that are just fun. And where our youngest son Jackson is, is just one of those stages where it's really fun. He's hobbling around, walking around, and he's copying everything you, he sees and other people do. And he's listening and his ears are perked up, he's alert, and all of his learning is coming by way of imitation. Uh, my daughter Violet decides that she likes to express herself through dancing, and so when music comes on, she likes to dance an interpretive dance there in the kitchen. And it's pretty entertaining to watch. <clears throat> and you can see some videos on my wife's phone if you want to be entertained for a few minutes with that. Um, all the way from donkey kicks to, uh, to graceful um, uh, twirls, you name it. And Jackson decides he wants to join her too. So he's you know, just kind of now getting on his feet and walking around everywhere. So he tries to twirl, twirl too with her. And so he turns his head this way. And just does this with her, and it's a it's a great it's a great uh, great entertainment for our family uh, here the last few days. But we're noticing that um, the things we say, he'll he'll hear and he'll echo back to us too. Little phrases or or um, words we speak to him, he'll respond back to us. And grandparents, you probably even have more of a delightful time here watching your grandkids pick up new skills and words as they grow up. And isn't it true that if we imitate the best models, we'll become better achievers, right? Better people, better achievers. But if we imitate the wrong models, it has a crippling effect. And so that's also a humbling thing when you have kids too. Because they also imitate what's wrong. And models influence us in every area of life. In 1 Peter 3, Peter starts out with this phrase, Likewise. Likewise, It means in the same manner, or in like manner. And he speaks to wives. Then in verse 7, he uses that phrase again, likewise, in the same manner, in the like manner, to, re- to speak to husbands. And the reason he is using this phrase, likewise, or in the same manner, is because he's connecting the application and the thought for husbands and wives and marriage and encouragement here back to the example of Jesus Christ. You see, God never tells us to do something without Him already providing the example for it. Without Him already providing the grace for it. And that grace is a person, and it's Jesus Christ. In fact, look at how He's referring to the likewise here in 1 Peter 2, verses 21-25. through Listen to this. Jesus, our example. In fact, He says this. For even here too were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. So that sets the stage here for the two likewises in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 7. Christ leaving an example that you should follow in His steps. Right? Now how was His example portrayed? Verse 22. Who did no sin, committed no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in His mouth. Who when He was reviled, Reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed or entrusted himself to him that judges rightly, righteously, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So what follows in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 now, is you living a life of holiness. 
uh, living a life of being dead to righteous, being dead to sins, and now alive to righteousness by the by the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Being people who are as sheep going astray, and now return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So, in the context of marriage, chapter three, one through seven, that's what it looks like here. The likewise here is connected to what Jesus has provided. Just as Jesus was submissive and obedient to God's will, sacrificial for others, so a Christian husband and wife should follow His example. Now, did you know that it is very possible to understand Christ's design for marriage and yet miss the heart of that design? Christ has established an order for our homes to build up His church, and that beautiful marriages in our households and our responses in even broken marriages, our responses of what we can control in those marriages here, reflect the beauty of God's peace and wisdom for the world to see with a curiosity. And it builds up the family of God, the church, for God's glory. There are some inner elements of God's design that are in contrast with culture, aren't there? Last time we looked in Ephesians 5, from, and where Paul formed the framework for the marriage relationship. We spent two Sundays on that, wives and then husbands. And in that passage, Paul spends a much larger amount of material on husbands, doesn't he? Setting the stage. And a little on wives. This is a household passage as well from Peter. And it ties those two, Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, ties it together with some significant additional insights. And together, these two passages form a very complete picture here of what God desires for His followers, for His disciples, and marriage and its beauty. Peter here focuses on the spirit of the marriage. And he gives us a more intimate look into the heart of God's design for marriage relationships. And it is this. The beauty of the proper spirit of a wife toward her husband and the husband's spirit toward his wife shows the heart of God's design for the marriage relationship. In other words, in 1 Peter 3 we get to the internal responses. The heart of the matter. And in this passage, there is an essential, eternal, internal quality that God is looking for in a wife toward her husband. And there is an essential, internal quality that God expects of a husband toward his wife that God will shower his blessing on. You'll notice here with that word likewise in husband and wife in verse 1 and 7 that there is a distinctive behavior here that is signaled. Peter refers referred us back to the whole pattern of Christian conduct he's described, the life of Christian pilgrims in this world, and this style of life, this way that is very different from Babylon, while living in Babylon will force hostile pagans to recognize Christian genuineness. Look in chapter 2 and verse 12. Having your conversation or your manner of life honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation when Christ returns and, and, um, and they are utterly honest, they will be able to glorify God for what they saw 
you exhibiting Jesus in your marriage. In chapter 3, 1 through 7. Both husband and wife are to follow Jesus, the suffering servant. The husband doesn't have the same design and the same role as his wife, and the wife does not have the same role and design as her husband, but there is a fundamental, underneath of this, there is a fundamental identity of attitude. Both are servants of God, seeking to serve the other for Christ's sake. So let's see how that unpacks here. Well, I want you to see in 1 Peter 3, 1-7, that all social relationships, and particularly here in the issue of marriage, husband and wives, are transformed simply by following Jesus Christ. By following Jesus Christ. First of all, this morning, I'd like you to see the charge to the wives. The charge to the wives. Um, he says, likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. The word subjection means submission. It's the idea it's used in another um, uh, Greek literature outside of the Bible. And it's the idea of understanding falling in rank. Falling in rank. Here. There is a charge that God gives. Be in subjection to your own husbands. But there is, following on the heels of that charge, there is a potential in this charge that is amazing. Peter sees in the impossible position, so to speak, impossible with quotation marks here, impossible position of the Christian wife as a remarkable opportunity to bear witness to Christ. Look what he says. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. What he's saying here is this. Be in submission to your own husband's leadership. And if you have a husband who is unsaved here, that's the idea of obey not the word. Paul, Paul talks about the obedience of faith for the Gentiles. It's the idea of, of, of being a believer. Okay? These are people, who, these are husbands who do not obey the word, so they are unbelievers. And you could extend the application, certainly, wives to husbands who may ex, uh, profess to be a believer but are, are not walking with the Lord. If any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now what is he saying? So if you have an unsaved husband here, Paul or Peter says there also is a potential here. You may, without your words, without using your words, without preaching at your husbands, you may win them by the manner of life and how you live out what Peter says. It's amazing. You see, God not only commands this manner of life for the wife, but He uses it as a powerful spiritual influence in a home. I have a friend who um, uh, was, was running away from God. And his wife, um, at the invite of another lady, went to a ladies' conference, a Christian conference, and God really worked in her heart. And she came back sharing with him how God uh, worked uh, in her heart and that tenderized his own heart. And the way she was responding to him where there had been just anger and, and fighting before, the way she now re- responded to him uh, softened his heart. And though he was a believer, he was not walking with the Lord, he was running away from God, um, God used that, his wife, really to turn his heart back to the Lord. 
You see, this does not. This passage does not tell us that a Christian wife just gives in to her unsafe husband in order to subtly manipulate him and get him to do what she desires. No, that's that's not that's not the, the living in the spirit. That's living in the flesh, and that's not to be found in the Christian home. And but but it is saying that an unsaved husband will not be converted by preaching or nagging in the home or turning the Christian radio up a little louder or whatever you do. The phrase without the Word here doesn't mean without the Word of God because salvation comes through the Word. It means without talk, without a lot of speaking about this topic here. And Christian wives who preach at their husbands may actually drive them farther away from the Lord. So the point is, what will be the most powerful witness to a husband who is not with the Lord is how you respond and how you treat him. That's the potential here of the charge. But there's also a manner here of the charge. He says that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives while, what? They behold your pure, your chaste conversation, your chaste manner of life, coupled with fear or respect here. There's a manner of this charge. There's a way to it that, that, that the subjection is to be displayed here. You see, these qualities are not something that you put in the wife factory and they're produced. These qualities are produced by the Holy Spirit. They are the overflow, they are the fruit of the Spirit when we are walking in line with Jesus. Remember 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 here. When we are submitted to Christ and to one another, a Christian wife with purity and reverence, that's what verse 2 is talking about, purity and reverence, will reveal in her life the praises and excellencies of God's grace. That's what chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us. And can have a powerful influence on her husband that trusts Christ. So there's a manner of a charge. But thirdly, underneath the charge of the wife, there is a spirit underneath of this charge, a spirit of the charge. That's a small s spirit here. And what I'm talking about is the internal qualities here. Notice what Peter says. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of braiding the hair or wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible or that which is imperishable, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Here's the spirit of the charge. Peter is saying that this submission is displayed in two things, a gentle and a quiet spirit. A gentle and a quiet spirit. That word that's translated meek in verse 4 here is the word gentle, and it's the idea of, it means this, one who is considerate and unassuming. Pretty simple. That word that is translated quiet spirit, that is a spirit that is, that is uh, not raging the storms of life in it. It's a, it's a spirit of tranquility. It's a spirit of, of a, of a, of a um, disposition that is calm and at ease. That's what it means. Calm and at ease. Now that word translated adorning is the word cosmos in the Greek. Um, it's where we get our English word cosmos, the ordered universe here. And it's also where we get the word cosmetic. Cosmetic. It's the opposite of chaos, right? Someone who's put together, right? Um, 
And Peter here says that in contrast to the Roman practices where women would try to outdo other women in how they looked, I mean, they'd have these um, uh, uh, crazy hairstyles that we would probably, the closest thing we would probably be able to relate them to is the beehive of the 1960s. You name it. They had all kinds of things woven in there. And, and Peter says, that is not what your mark should be on this world here. He's not saying, by the way, that you should never wear gold, you should never braid your hair, um, you should never you know, dress nicely. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, here's what needs to be the mark of your heart. That should not be your identity. Your, 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 your identity in Jesus is not to draw attention to yourself. It's to draw attention to your Savior. And the thing that draws attention to your Savior is this. A considerate and unassuming and a calm and at ease spirit. That speaks wonders. That speaks wonders. Roman women, as I mentioned, were captivated by the latest fashions of the day. They competed with each other. They wore elaborate, expensive garments, all for the purpose of impressing each other. And, and, and perhaps in this setting, as Peter is writing, there might be a Christian wife and she has an unsaved husband and she might think she must imitate the world and, and outdo the other ladies if she's going to win her mate. But just the opposite is true, Peter says. You see, glamour is something that is artificial and it's external. Glamour. We're not talking about looking nice. We're talking about glamour here. It's in a whole other category, right? True beauty is real and it is internal. Glamour is something that a person can take off and wash off, right? At the end of the day. True beauty is always present. Glamour is corruptible. It decays and it fades. True beauty from the heart can grow more wonderful as the years pass. And perhaps I'm not the only one who's ever noticed this, but age is the great equalizer with physical beauty, isn't it? Age has a way of bringing everybody down back to the same level, doesn't it? But not with spiritual beauty. Not with the beauty that really matters. You see, true beauty from the heart can grow and become more stunning as the years pass. And here's what Peter is saying. A Christian woman who cultivates the beauty of the inner person will not have to depend on cheap externals. Warren Wearsby said, God is concerned about value, not prices. Value, not prices. Now certainly, any husband is proud of a wife who's attractive, but that beauty needs to come from the heart, not from Sally's beauty supply. The deep and growing beauty of a woman who trusts in the Lord will have its effect on her husband, but above all, her spiritual beauty will be precious. Look what it says in verse 4. Which is in the sight of God, God who made them in His image. He says that is of a great price. A great price. Now Peter's point here is that the good conduct of these wives should stem from their relationship with God. One commentator, commentator rightly says that wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation even. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands, and not even because she thinks she's wise. 
She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. That's why she submits. You see, her husband is not the end of all things. God is. She submits because of who God is. In fact, chapter 3 and verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, right? Set them apart in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, why would an unbeliever want to know uh, and answer the reason of the hope that's in you? Because he's seen that there's something different about you, right? The way you live. And 1 Peter 3, 1-6 is a wonderful example of that here in the context of the life. <clears throat> now, Fourthly here, there's the example of the charge. The example of the charge. For after this manner in the old time, in Old Testament days, the holy women also, being trust, uh, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. That word is terror. Terror. Here's the example of the charge. Sarah is chosen here as a specific example of a woman from the Old Testament who was submissive to her husband. She obeyed Abraham and she called him her master. Which is to say that she recognized him as a leader and head of the household. You can look in Genesis 18 verse 12. That's what Peter was referring to. The idea there of calling him Lord would be like our polite address today, Mr. So perhaps you've heard um, a wife referred her husband to another person as Mr. So-and-so, right? Here. Um, and it's just an indication of respect that Sarah spoke of Abraham here. But notice how Sarah could do this. How Sarah could do, to, do this. She says, he says, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you dwell, and, not, and are not afraid with any amazement. And verse 5 says, For after this man in the old time, the holy woman also who trusted in God adorned themselves. You see, a quiet confidence in God produces in a woman this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's where it starts. It's not like, I, it's not like you deciding, I'm going to be a gentle and quiet spirit today. Next, next hour, next minute. No. It begins out of a confident Hope in God. A confident hope in God. And it enables her because she submitted to God's authority and enables her to submit to this human being that God has bound her to here in her marriage here without fear that it will be ultimately harmful to her well-being or personhood. That's why Peter says here that she can do this and not be afraid with any amazement or the word is terror. Because she can submit to her husband's authority because ultimately she knows he's just the middleman here, in a certain sense. I say that respectfully. But it's God who I'm submitting to. And this is for my well-being. So that's the charge to the wife. Well, the charge to the husband is a little shorter here. In Ephesians 5 it was longer. But the charge to the husband is in verse 7. Where he says, Likewise, you husbands... Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. What he's saying here, very simply, is this. Husbands, you are to be the thermostats in your home. Wives often are the thermometers. 
Thermostat is to set the pace here. Spiritual leadership, set the spiritual temperature. And if you're freaking about how your wife responds to things, maybe you need to look at the thermostat first. Because many times, not all the time, but many times the wife will be the thermometer letting him know what the temperature is. Husbands, he's saying, should live together with their wives informed by the knowledge of God's will of what he demands them to do. He says in verse 7, dwell with them according to knowledge here. And that word knowledge, there's a little debate about what he's talking about, knowing your wife, dwelling them according to the knowledge you have of your wife, or the knowledge of Scripture. I personally think he's talking about here the knowledge of Scripture that will then overflow in its application the knowledge of wife, of your wife. But here's what, he, here's, what, here's what I believe it means. The knowledge here that Peter's talking about here, dwelling with them according to knowledge, is any knowledge that would be beneficial to the husband and wife relationship, which covers everything, right? Knowledge of the Word of God, God's purposes. Principles for marriage. Knowledge of your specific wife. Her desires, her goals and frustrations. Knowing her strengths, her weaknesses. And the physical, emotional and spiritual realms. And a husband who can dwell or live with them, is the idea of living with them, according to this knowledge, will greatly enrich his marriage relationship, the scripture is saying to us. But you know where that knowledge comes from? First of all, it comes through knowing God, right? And knowing God specifically through the gospel, right? How he has shepherded and shown his love toward us. It's also known, of course, through fellowship together with your wife. Notice the manner of this charge. The manner of this charge here. He says, likewise, your husbands dwell them according to knowledge, giving honor, giving honor to the wife. As to the weaker vessel, giving honor to the wife. So here's the manner of the charge here. Giving honor, giving honor. The idea here is to appreciate her. It's to help her. In verses 1 through 6, he has told the wife that she must submit to his leadership here, but she does, he does not say that to her because she is a lesser person spiritually. He does not say that to her because she is a lesser person emotionally. He says that because that's what Jesus did to his father, didn't he? And Jesus is no less of a person than his father. He says that so that we understand husbands then how we are to be the leaders who they are much easier to submit to. So there is a the manner of the charge here is giving them honor, dignity here. Raising them up. Your wife is not to submit to you as a lesser person. Your wife, submission to you is an opportunity for you then to honor them. Show honor to them. Notice the spirit of this charge to the husbands. Dwell them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel. The weaker vessel. You see, in Genesis 2.23, God calls man, man. And that word at its root is the idea of strong. And God calls woman, woman. And the word at that root is the word soft in the Hebrew language here. In Christ, don't we see a beautiful blend of strength and tenderness? And that is what it takes to be a successful husband. The husband should treat his wife like somebody who is a beautiful, tender, precious Treasure is the idea here. One who you treat with honor. He says, as to the weaker vessel. And what he's simply referring to is generally physically. 
here, physically here. This weakness here in, in Roman times was often used to, to put women down. But yet, Peter here sees the weakness, the physical weakness of a woman to show them more consideration. More consideration. He actually sees it as the way to raise them up and to serve in an even greater way. Now, what is the reason for the charge here? By the way, all those things I said aren't politically popular, but they are what the Bible says who designed us. He says, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. That word that he used earlier in the verse of giving honor here, it's a word that's translated precious in chapter 2 and verse 7. When, Paul, when Peter says, the, uh, uh, or, I can't find the verse here, but he talks about Jesus' blood as being precious here. And it means preciousness. The honor or preciousness to the husband must bestow on his wife is not only the recognition of her place in God's ordinance of marriage, it is the honor that is hers here. And here's what he's saying at the end of verse 7, heirs together the grace of life, hers as one of God's precious and holy people. And married couples here. Husbands, you are to recognize that your wife is God's is one of God's precious and holy people. She's your spiritual sister. And even though a husband has been given greater authority within marriage, Peter is making it very clear that their wives are still equal to them in spiritual privilege and in, in eternal importance. They are precious. That's why he says they are joint heirs. They are joint heirs. Heirs together, as it's translated here. Heirs together. So understand, first of all, that you together are heirs together, husbands and wives. You're heirs together, this grace. You are not better than her. You are to treat her with honor because you're heirs together of the grace of life. And that's a powerful thing if you stop and think deeply about that. But secondly, the reason of the charge is that they are unhindered. Unhindered. The idea of unhindered is the idea of a blockage. Right? That there is nothing between God's blessing and your marriage, husbands. Do not let the way that you treat your wife be a hindrance to God's blessing. God will not bless your marriage if you are not operating in these ways in verse 7. If husbands, in other words, if husbands fail to give that honor, their fellowship with their wives will suffer, and so will their fellowship with God. Their prayers will be hindered, he says in verse 7. The prayers of the husband will be blocked. They will lose their effectiveness. Perhaps he has in view the prayers together of the home here. And there is a blockage because the husband is not fulfilling God's design in his marriage of treasuring his wife. Because the human relationship of marriage is what God has designed to mirror the love of Christ for the church and the church for Christ. And so concerned is God that Christian husbands live in this understanding and loving way with their wives that he, listen to this, that God will interrupt his relationship, his fellowship, I should say, with them when they're not doing so. 
No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished in his life without the right treatment of his wife. He'll be ineffective. And to, so, so to take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is obviously God's will, isn't it? And it is serving God. And it is not something way down on the list here. It is a spiritual activity, husbands, that is pleasing in God's sight. If you go advance to the next slide here, uh, there's some good questions here. One author brings up that I thought were, were helpful. He asks... Husbands and wives, are we partners together, joint heirs of the grace of life, or are we competitors? We go in different ways. Are we helping each other become more spiritual? Honestly, think about that. Are we helping each other become more and more like Jesus, growing into God? God-likeness. And this passage also forces us to ask this question here. Are we depending on the externals or the eternals? The internal things. The artificial or the real? Fourthly, do we understand each other better? And are we sensitive to each other's feelings and ideas or taking each other for granted? Marriage isn't something that happens, uh, flourishing marriage isn't something that happens by default. Not in a broken world. There must be effort. There must be work. There must be surrender. There must be pursuit of God. Are we seeing God answer our prayers? The end of verse 7. Are we enriched because of our marriage or robbing each other of God's blessing? Now, some of you will take that question and will say, Well, I am not enriched because of my spouse. No. Is your spouse enriched spiritually because of you? We talked this morning in our Sunday school class about being an instrument in God's hands in our marriage. Are we enriched because of our marriage? Or are we? am I robbing our marriage of God's blessing? And in those questions, if there are answers that you know do not line up with the Lord, and men, you need to take the lead in this, the responsibility in this. Here, you're the thermostat. Then you need to repent, and you need to let your wife know that. And confess that. Wives, did you know you can submit to your husband's leadership externally and yet miss the real internal elements of God's design? Put on a real good show. Is your heart rate. Husbands, you know you can lead and you can still really miss the whole point of your responsibility of displaying Jesus and having Jesus' heart. But did you know that husbands and wives, God's grace is so amazing that you can repent of that and find forgiveness and find power to go on the next day? That you can seek God to build a true love and a bond for the glory glory of His church? How is the spirit of your marriage? Wives, from our passage today, is it a marriage of a gentle and a quiet spirit toward your husband, no matter what an ogre he is? You are to, by God's grace, through your eternal hope in God, your hope is not in your husband and your spouse, it's eternal hope in God, develop, you are able to, by God's power, develop a beautiful internal spirit to your husband. Husbands, do you have a marriage of living sensitively with your wife? 
Understanding God's design for marriage and for the purpose of your family. Husbands, you are to lead, provide, protect, nurture, and possess a love so strong and selfless that your wives' interests are your interests. Up to the point of laying down your own lives for them, Ephesians 5 says. That is manhood here. That is who wives are to respect, follow, in gentleness and ease, and at ease based on a confident trust in God. That is a man, a husband, that is much easier for a wife to speak respectfully to and respectfully of, isn't it? How would you, husbands and wives, evaluate the heart of your marriage? Singles. What is the spirit of how you treat the opposite sex? Is it what the Lord desires and commands? And purity. You want to know how to do that, read 1 Timothy 5. Because he tells young men, young ladies, older men, older women. Young men, how do you treat your mother? I talked to one of the dear saints in this room this week, and she said um, the, the, uh, one of the things that caught her eye in her husband was how she noticed how he treated his mother. Young ladies, how do you treat your father? How do you treat your father? Because it makes a difference. And it will have a connection to how you will treat your spouse. Marriages that are represented in this room here, what are the things in your life you need to work on uh, here, as we talked about, in singles, what are the things in your life you need to work on for a possible future marriage? By God's grace. Older singles, how can you encourage those in the church who need to embrace the significance of these truths? You see, this is what it means to be holy. Becoming like the Lord, lining our lives with His will and His design. And you can have a tremendous influence of encouragement. Wives and how you respond to your husbands in this way. Husbands, how you treat your wives in this way, in your marriage. You know, our church here is made up of many families, isn't it? But you know, our church is only as strong as our individual families, isn't it? And so we need strong households that display the glory and beauty of God in the gospel. Because that, friends, is countercultural. Do not let the world dictate how our marriages are supposed to be. Follow God's word. Receive His spiritual blessing.